Hi, everybody. Welcome back. It's Jacqueline. And Alana. And here's another episode of Black and Yellow for you guys. What up, Black and Yellow Nation? Welcome to another episode. We're almost done with Ohm October, but to be honest, I haven't felt very Ohm this month with like <laughs> with like the fucked up state of our government leading up to this election and the fact that women might lose their reproductive rights uh, if Amy Coney Barrett is elected to the Supreme Court, which, full disclosure, we are recording this exactly one week before the vote for Amy is cast. So by the time this episode comes out, she might actually be a Supreme Court justice. Cross your fingers and all toes and hope that that's not the case. But um, yeah, this month of wellness has me shook to be super real with you. And I kind of can't wait for November, even though that is going to have its own landmines. Um, But today's guest is, I think, going to calm our nerves a little bit. She's... (sighs) So rad, and we can't wait for her to talk to you guys. Yes, absolutely. Our next guest is incredible and all around amazing and funny. And and like Lana said, uh, yeah, this this whole like October in Los Angeles, it's been like it was like a little bit cold, and now it's hot again, and so it just feels all around a little off. Like it should be fall, but it's still summer. Um, it COVID should be over, but it's not, <laughs> um, you know, the government should be this, but it's not. So it, it, I agree. It, it, it's ironic that we have an ohm October, but it hasn't been feeling very ohm like right. all the more reason to do a wellness month to really remember to keep up with our self care, um, you know, to, to not, lose control or to get too crazy about the things we can't control um and just take deep breaths because life will keep moving on regardless of who's president i'm snapping to everything you're saying snapping finally (laughs) so that it doesn't mess with the sound but yes i'm here for all of that um okay well let's try and get some some wellness vibes shall we i don't know if Mm -hmm. it's going to be successful but let's try Mm -hmm. So I wanted to kick off today's episode by sharing a story that inspired today's topic. So last year, I did a photo shoot for a fitness sunglass line that I love. I use every day. Shout out to Gooder. We love you guys. Carrie and the crew. And the shoot was in a national park. And up until that point, meaning up until the photo shoot, uh, I had never been to a national park. And I realized that in hindsight on the drive home and while the photo shoot was a success and a ton of fun as they always are, I couldn't shake two very specific nagging feelings. Feeling number one, stay close to the crew because you don't belong out here. Even though we were in California, even though I was physically safe the entire time and no one made me uncomfortable whatsoever, and even though I was only a six to eight hour drive back home to Los Angeles, it felt like a whole ass world away from anything I had ever known. And there was something about that feeling that nagged me and I just couldn't shake it. Feeling number two was I kept hearing a rolling loop of stereotypes about black people and nature that I hadn't heard that I that I had heard my entire life and couldn't get out of my head. Stereotypes like black people don't camp. 
Black people don't hike. Black people don't bungee jump for obvious reasons. Black people hate cold weather and skiing and winter sports. We don't do that kind of thing. Um, and as a quick side note, like cold weather sports and winter sport culture has always been over my head. And I very much attribute that to this uh, stereotype. So basically, I've lived my entire life, my entire black and bougie life, uh, being bombarded with this messaging that tells me that black people don't do nature, in essence. Jay, are there any stereotypes like this that exist in Asian culture? I know that you're the resident naturalista. I know that you commune with nature. You are one with it. You grow your food. You've got a plant-based food business. Like, I get that. But in terms of being in nature, like, are there, do those stereotypes exist in Asian culture? Um, I do think, yes, partly, um, you know, I think we talked a little bit about this on our show with Michelle Canyon. Oh, yeah. Um, about how generally, you know, Asian cultures do not always value physical activity as much as academia or music or something that is going to further your career or further your 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 education right um which could contribute to stereotypes like not being very physical and not enjoying nature or, or feeling connected to nature however i think i am in alignment with our guests that we have today for you guys <laughs> because i grew up extremely physical i snowboard i swim i hike um, and I think I attribute that again to my family. My mom was always very outdoorsy. Um, she would make us run all the time, just like on weekends. Um, and I'm not like, she's like, she's not just not like whipping me into running. But, you know, she would she would gather her kids and be like, hey, let's go on a run, you know. And, and if you don't, if you didn't have that growing up, then you probably didn't enjoy running as much right i don't know um so yes and no like i I, like you said i think those those stereotypes do exist and then they could like for you mean that maybe you grew up a certain way not not thinking that that was something that that you could do or wanted to do even right right um but i was exposed to snowboarding really really young with my cousin and i loved it i fell in love with snowboarding um, and despite all the ickiness and the pain and the cold and the sweat, um, to me, it is one of the most exhilarating sports in the world. Um, so yeah, like once you get to the top of the mountain, there is nothing like it. And when you're coming down a mountain alone and it's the, the snow is fluffy, like similarly to what our guests will probably share today, it is, it is blissful. It is like. You're like, it's like you're in heaven. There's nothing else you can describe, but just like being at the depths of the ocean. Um, my mom and I scuba dived for a while and it was like n- nothing I had ever seen before. It was mind blowing to see the ocean in that way. So I think it's like, I w- and I hated it. Like it was cold. <laughs> um, I was, like people were throwing up, you're seasick. But the moment you get under the water, you're like, Oh, this is why I do this. So, you know, it is that kind of like like push and pull of, of weathering um, the the way to get there or the gear or everything. But when you can have that moment, I think it it is it is worth it. And I think that's why people do it. And then after a while, you just get used to it. It's just like like running a half marathon. You just get used to the training. You just get used to the the distance. You slowly work yourself up there. Um, so yeah, I do believe that definitely exists in Asian culture. I know so many Asians that don't like the sun, don't like the beach, mm. don't like the tan, um, are afraid of the water, don't do any of that stuff. And then 
And then I know it's the has been the complete opposite with me. So there you go. <laughs> Two things. Wait, you didn't mention that you ice skated growing up. I'm only mentioning that because of oh, your yes. friendship with Mariah, you know, an Olympic, uh, an Olympic ice skater. Just, so I just, just have to put Olympic, that out there. Yeah, just an Olympic medalist. You know, yeah, that too. Yeah. My mom put us in ice skating when I was six and I ice skated till nine or ten and like and I skated in the way of becoming professional. So we would wake up at five in the morning um before before school every morning for three or four years and we would skate in the rink for two and a half hours and then we would lug all our gear back in the car and then we would change and then in the car and probably like eat something quick and then we'd go to school um for for yeah like for most of my my grade school that was it so I guess, yeah, I guess it's just been in my bones since I was a young girl. But For sure. I also, mm-hmm. when you were talking about being on the top of a mountain about to skate down, I felt like I was in your body and I could hear that excited Jackie squeal like right before you go <laughs> down a mountain. <laughs> Um, But I'm saying that because like I'm insanely jealous of the fact that you have this connection that I in no way, shape or form can relate to. Did your family camp at all? See, that's one thing I wish I did more of. Um, No, we did not camp. And the first time I actually camped was with an an ex a long, long time ago. And like, again, it was it was I was like, oh, bugs. And I felt like such a city girl. I was like, (laughs) I was like, I was like that 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 evil girlfriend in um, in the Lindsay Lohan movie. What's that? Um, Parent trap. Oh um, my god! I felt like I felt like her, and I'd be like, "Ah, there's bugs in my hair," or like, "There's no shower," and you know, because it is pretty terrifying to just all of a sudden like you're ripped out of normal society in a way. You don't have mm-hmm. a, a toilet unless you're glamping. Um, you don't have a toilet. You don't have a shower. You know, and I was like, well, "What? What are you in the like?" And anyway, so I I went with it. I was like, "Don't be a pussy. Just go with it." Um, and I I loved it. I was like, "Why didn't I ever camp?" before i'm dirty and i smell like i smell like forest and fire but i love that smell so you know it just it's just yeah it's just like a learning experience every time just gotta roll with it (laughs) as uncomfortable (laughs) as you may feel no totally i mean yeah not only do black people not camp my father made it very clear uh camping is too much manual labor and on my vacation time i do not choose to go and do more work and eat subpar food okay thanks bye right Um, right so so all of this nature talk said it made me want to do an episode focusing on the stereotype of why black people don't camp mainly because any conversation about wellness generally mentions getting out into nature communing mm-hmm. with the great outdoors you know uh common phrases like getting some fresh air in your lungs feeling the cool breeze on your skin take a plunge into a body of water work up a sweat outside bask in the warm sunlight take in a sunset all of those getting outdoorsy with it things that often come with wellness um it's generally recommended as an all-natural form of medicine that is free to everyone and that in theory should be accessible right but let's be real White people love the label outdoorsy. They wear it like a badge of honor. And the outdoors have primarily always been one thing to white people. Great. They have always welcomed, they've always been welcomed in nature in a way that black people have not or have not been made to feel comfortable in. So on today's episode, we're going to talk about the great outdoors and why they haven't always been so great to black people. But first, let's put our money where our mouth is. Alrighty, guys. So for those of you guys who are 
back for our episodes, our first-time listeners. You know that our Put Our Money Where Your Mouth is segment is where we celebrate businesses, female, black, Asian-owned businesses, local. Um, it's our way of economic protest, and it's our way to keep sharing, keep passing on this information so you guys can get it and then also put your money where our mouth is. Um, <laughs> All right, Alana, what you got today? Okay, so in the theme of camping, I figured there's got to be a black-owned camping product company. There is. It seems as though there's only one. It's called Serious Innovation. It's owned by Mike Carey, and it's a black-owned outdoor performance gear brand. So Serious is a company that manufactures ski and snowboard gloves, face protection, hunting gear, hot weather gear, and other cold weather accessories. And their mission is to deliver the best products to enable all outdoor enthusiasts to do amazing stuff outside in the great outdoors to reach their potential outside. And their mantra is to foster a culture where commitment to excellence in product innovation, quality and customer service permeates all that they do. So just as it says, you need some warm weather gloves, they got you. You need something for your head, perhaps a balaclava mask. I have no idea what that is, but you outdoorsy types probably do. They've got it all for you. And their stuff is super cute because it's black owned. A lot of their pattern stuff can have a slightly African themed vibe Mm. or their stuff is just really brightly colored. I don't know if that's common in cold weather clothes or like ski clothes, but yeah. So you can stand out. So you're not like lost in the Ah. snow or in the dark. See, Jackie, naturalista, you got it. Um, Serious Innovation, check them out. They don't have an Instagram, uh, but www.serious, that's S-E-R-I-U-S dot com is their website, and I will drop it into show notes. All right, Jay, what you got? Um, That makes me... Thank you for coming. That's a great idea. I should have looked into an agent-owned outdoorsy type, but... But that will be for my next episode. I was going to say, it was always next time. Yes, exactly. So I this happened as I was looking for stuff for myself. But um, I wanted to spotlight no tox life. Like no toxic life. Um, No Tox Life was born from the desire to create, provide effective vegan body and home care to help you live a cleaner, greener lifestyle. Um, They're local, they're family run, they're mom and daughter female run. We know how you like that. I sure do. Um, That is one of my firm beliefs of, of, you know, of supporting these family owned, especially female owned businesses, um, because I have one myself. Um, and I know how much hard work it takes and, <laughs> yes. um, we need all the love and we can get. Um, so each product is made using high quality, effective ingredients. It's, um, a mom, Sandy and daughter Callie. Um, their products are made with, um, plant derived ingredients. Um, and it all started with the mom. Um, Sandy was at a, um, uh, at a grocery store and she was like, I need some shampoos. And she picked it up and she looked at the ingredients and she noticed that everything was extremely harsh. Um, and she thought to herself, similar to probably what my mom thinks about food all the time. You know, she looked at the shampoo bottle. And she was like, I can make this. So she went home and through thousands and thousands and thousands of countless hours of research, math and getting the recipe right and testing, um, they um, started making soap and other bath and body products. Um, So now they have some cosmetics and they have some kitchen stuff like uh, a kitchen dish and laundry and all that stuff. um, Dish soap. Um, So, yeah, it's uh, a certified 
woman-owned small business. Um, and the daughter, uh, Callie, designs and formulates the new products. Um, she directs the look of the brand as well as managing sales um, in hundreds of independent grocery stores, um, zero-waste stores, and lifestyle stores carrying the line. So good for them. Yeah. Um, they're they're it's pretty awesome what they've been able to do um they started in 2013 so it's been almost a decade for them so good on that that's awesome yeah you and i both have experience with this brand um you use their home stuff they have a kick-ass non-toxic deodorant that i have been using for years now it is awesome and it doesn't give you that weird um like baking soda burn that sometimes some people do yeah Yeah. like when you go from the fake stuff to the natural stuff that can happen it doesn't and it works like it truly works not like there's like a lingering low-key funk sort of situation right um and if you are a california listener Back when the pandemic was behind us, they do also do festivals, Jackalope Festival in Pasadena and Burbank. I think they do Unique LA. So you can check them out as well in person if you're in California uh, once the pandemic is over. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, yeah. So you, you can find their products online. And then, oh, just real quick, they also do wholesale. So it's really, <gasps> oh, I it's didn't really know nice. that. Yeah. If you wanted to like get anything like bulk or, you know, obviously different pricing, um, they do wholesale. Um, and then I, I know they're expanding. They have toothpaste, toothbrush, um, floss, all that stuff. So get all your goodies and then go camping. Yeah, I was going to say, like, do your winter sports stuff, stock up on all the accessories. And then once you come home or once you're apres ski, is that a thing? Yes, that's after ski, right? I think that's. Oh, yeah. In French. Yeah. That is an all as much as I know about winter sport culture as apres ski. Uh, <laughs> clean off with some vegan products. Uh, I'll drop links to all of this in the show notes. And let's get to our guest intro because she is awesome. So Latreya Graham is a journalist and fifth generation South Carolina farmer. Her Ooh. work stands at the intersection of food, social justice and Southern culture. She writes long form pieces about everything from NASCAR, from farming to NASCAR. She's a graduate of Dartmouth College and later earned her MFA in creative nonfiction from the New School in New York City. She is a three time best American sports writing notable for her stories on athletes in places of tension, primarily Standing Rock and Flint. She received a bronze level case award for her reporting on immigration policy that stemmed from 2017's executive order 13769, often referred to as the travel ban. A Steve Kemp writer in residence for Great Smoky Mountains National Park, her project for the year focused on the lives of enslaved African Americans on the Tennessee side of the park. Her work has appeared in Oxford American, Outside, Bicycling, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the NYT, LA Times, The Guardian, ESPNW, Southern Living. <gasps> I've taken many breaths because there's so many because she's so amazing. And Garden and Gun. <laughs> Latreo, welcome. We are thrilled to have you on the Black and Yellow podcast. Yeah, and I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. So uh, we are very excited to chat with you. Uh, Why don't you start by telling our audience about the work that you do? Because even though we are talking nature, your writing career is not just limited to writing about nature. Yeah, um, that's true. So um, when people ask me what I write about, I often say that I write about the body. And sometimes that's the forces that play on it or the tension within it. 
So if I'm doing a profile of an athlete or something, usually it's getting inside their minds because it's them against themselves. Normally, occasionally there are outside forces. When I'm working on a lot of environmental policy work, like I did in Flint and in Standing Rock, I'm thinking about the stressors on the body in terms of clean water and all of the things that are keeping people from that. Um, so I really do think about it from sort of that body-centered perspective. So I cover food, um, I cover culture and, and sort of art and crafts and um, the intellectual philosophical ways of thinking about the body. But I also get to engage in nature in this really fun, interesting way and talk about all the ways people challenge themselves or soothe themselves um, in you know the natural world. I love a black intellect. I just have to tell you, you and Angela Davis are my favorite people. <laughs> oh my God. I, was, I love them. I, I stand. You don't understand. Y'all just, oh my God. I know they can't see it, but y'all saw it. Y'all saw the hair flip. It was yeah. We got it. We uh, got it. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Keep that in your heart if ever you're feeling low. You're a black intellect right up there with Angela Davis and we love. Yes. I'm Absolutely. putting that on a post-it note. <laughs> everywhere everywhere and all the walls there you go yes so definitely you are a capital o outdoorsy girl talk to us about your relationship with nature um i don't so that's so interesting that y'all see me as a capital o outdoorsy girl because i do not feel that way uh, oh come now really i know but it's because yes okay so a lot of my friends have hiked like long trails um a good um person that I look up to her name is Rahawa Hale and she's also a black yes. nature writer yes so she's a yes. American she uh -huh. lives in Oakland. she's amazing and like she's hiked the entire AT right you know so mm -hmm. we're talking over 2,000 miles and like that's not my jam right so I often mm -hmm. think of like these true outdoors people which is like a lie imposter syndrome exists even in the way we think about ourselves in the outdoors right um, and I'm right. like, oh, I haven't done a long trail or whatever. I've spent all these years outside, but it it feels like I, there are moments where I, it still feels like I haven't earned that moniker. Um, and like that, like when you're like capital O outdoorsy, I'm like, am I? I don't know about this. I'd like, you know, I usually go for my hike and then I go home, right? Like I'm not spending several months in a row outside. So like, you know, but again, it's that marketing. It's what we think of as engaging in the outdoors and all mm -hmm. of that sort of stuff. Um, you know, even though I've taken wilderness rescue and been certified and all of these other things, I'm like, am I outdoorsy? And the truth is, yes, yes, I am. If you look at my hiking pants collection and even my hiking <laughs> boot collection, I, I am very much, it's a little bit of a problem. And maybe the Love closest it. I um, ever can be to a hoarder. But yeah, like I, I anyway. Um, but yeah, so it, it started um, fairly even keeled. I'm from a rural community. Um, my family has a farm, and so I've always sort of engaged with animals and plants um, in the idea of reading the weather or understanding the weather because it understands what you can do in a mm -hmm. day and things like that. Um, but when I had the chance to go off to Dartmouth, which is in Hanover, New Hampshire, um, the Appalachian Trail runs through it, and you're also in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, and I um, saw a different type of wilderness and maybe wildness, you know, these big granite mountains exposed rock um, and all of this stuff for the first time um, and decided to engage with those and learn about them. Um, and I've sort of been in some ways wandering ever since. Even when I moved to New York City, I would do the 60 block walk home through Central Park, right? For the greenery yeah. 
and, you know, to read a book by Harlem Meir and all of that. So my relationship with nature has changed over the years, but it's always been um, a great source of, of peace and solace, even when it's at its most tumultuous, right? Like being outside in the middle of a thunderstorm is uh, a little less thrilling when you don't have on the right gear. But it's just yeah. like, this is, <laughs> this is what happens and it's fine. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you can understand yeah. in some ways how you, how the thunderstorm came and things like that. And in points of my life where things felt a little random, uncertain, or, or just not understandable, um, I've always sort of been able to turn to a green space to try to sort myself out. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. I think there's something very healing about just being in nature, especially in today's world, just disconnecting from all the devices. You know, there is something very important. And I think more and more people are being gravitated to, to those small moments. Um, so speaking of nature, we're here talking about the article you wrote. We're here. You just don't see us. And we'll link it to the show notes. Our audiences can read it. It's a fantastic read. Um, but tell us, for the people who haven't read it, tell us what the article is about and what inspired you to write it. And why was this important for you? Why was this article important for you to write? Yeah. Um, I got tired of the outdoors being considered white people stuff, right? Like letting them sort of have ownership of this space that, um, you know, originally belonged to indigenous people, right? Before Westward Extension and like there's all of that. And then also like their idea of possession of it allowed them to believe it belonged to them and intimidate other people off of it. Like, uh, you know, just people of color in general whether you're looking at Latinx people, Black people, or people that have more recently immigrated, you know, to the country, um, through language, through the way that they kept knowledge and would talk to one another about it and stuff. So I got tired of people saying Black people don't. And that's with a lot of things. So like, um, you know, Black people don't do veganism, you know, as as you know now from the uprise or from the rise of like TikTok, Samantha Brown and Instagram, we do. We've been doing it forever, right? And so this idea of like black people don't do classical music. My brother and I grew up as classical musicians. And so we knew that to be true. It, it, it just felt like people kept making blackness, one, a monolith, and two, very, very small. And at some point you get tired of that. Um, and this was my way. I've spent my entire career writing back against something, right? Usually something I'm frustrated by or ashamed of or seek to understand. Those are probably my top. Um, and I was frustrated by the idea that like when I said oh I'm going for a hike or whatever that like there was an instant reaction to that right Um, and not necessarily an understanding of it and I wanted to figure out how we got that way so Mm. when Outside Magazine reached out to me and they were like hey do you have any ideas is there something that you want to write about or you know explore Um, you know this this was at the top of the list there were two main ideas that I went to them with Um, And this is the one that they really, really liked. Um, So the goal of this piece is called We're Here, You Just Don't See Us. And I'm writing back against this statistic that like something like 4% of African-Americans go to national parks. And I was like, yeah, I believe that number. But here's here's why. We're in state Mm -hmm. parks. We recreate, you know, on private land due to safety. We do things differently. And the way you're trying to count us is not necessarily culturally accurate. Like, I mean, the entire setup for the experiment is incorrect. Like it's flawed, right? It's not mm-hmm. going to work and you're not going to get what you need. Um, and then the Outdoor Industry Alliance did calls with people of color 
um, and asked, you know, why don't you go to National Park? And 16% of African-Americans said safety, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a whole lot that we have to delve into about the history of Black people in this country and where we were allowed to go, sometimes where we're still prohibited from going, um, that people don't talk about, and whether that is by custom, by violence, or all of these other things. Um, you know, and it really gave me a chance, they, and I, I can't believe they gave me like six or 7,000 words to really kind of <laughs> unspin this thing. Well, because people are like, we'll give you 1,500 words to talk about the history of the universe. And you're like, that's what? not enough. Right. It's not enough. That's not and enough. Just, and like, even for this, I turned in like 10,000 words and we cut 3,000 of them, you know, like, and oh, wow. that happens. Like, I mean, when I write things, I tend to not necessarily overwrite, but, you know, have more to say than can fit into the space. And you have to figure out how to make it a neat argument. But yeah, so, you know, it, it's to get, it was a joy to get that type of space because writers, especially at that point, I was a fairly new writer. I started writing November, 2015. So this piece came out in 2018, but I wrote it in 2017. So I'm two mm -hmm. years into my career and they're giving me, you know, seven, eight pages of space in a print magazine. And that very rarely happens, but it was important to them and a priority to them. And it was obviously a priority to me. And so we, we figured great. out how to, how to sort of do that. So yeah, that's, that's why it's called We're Here, You Just Don't See Us. Because we are, we're outside and we're doing these things. You're just looking in all the wrong places to try to find. Well, I want to, I have a question, excuse me, coming up hot on that one. Because truth be told, this episode was originally titled Why Black People Don't Camp. And then I read your article. I felt seen. I felt called in. We don't do call out culture on this podcast. We call in. And I was compelled to change right. the title. Again, I'm not going to give away why. But our audience, if you want to know why, go ahead and read the article. You will figure out very soon why the, the title of this episode was changed. Um, where do you think these limiting beliefs about black people and nature come from? And why do they still persist? Because it feels very generational. I got mine from my parents. My parents got their beliefs of nature from their parents, so on and so forth. Yeah. So there are a couple of, of um, reasons, I think. I mean, when you're looking at sort of the history of this country and um, the fact that Black people were enslaved for a really long time and you didn't have control over your house or your conditions or so many other things, right? You finally get out of the terrible weather and all of these bad things that have happened to you. Why would you want to go back? Like, you know, that is something mm -hmm. my, my family is very split. My mom's family is not super outdoorsy. And like the one uncle that is owns a like Mercedes RV. Like it is oh. very much like Ooh, a fancy. luxury. Yeah, it's, it's very, very <laughs> different. Whereas like, me and my little hundred dollar tent will be out here in the back. Like I really want to do. I he goes do, glamping. Yeah. And I mean, it's it still, it gets him outside and exposes parts of our family to the outdoors in a different way that they would not, like they're not going to be like sleeping pad and tent people. And mm. that's fine. So like I, there, there's no shade there. There's no shame, no yeah. judgment and stuff like that. But his idea is like, but, but why though? Why would I uh. like, like why the tent? Why, why this part of it? Um, you know, so a, a little bit of it is that in terms of generational, some of it is just like safety. Like there's nothing protecting you. If you're sort of outside, <laughs> there's no lock on your mm -hmm. door, like it is on the door for your house and things like that. Um, so there's, there's a little bit of that. And, you know, black people used to know that bad things happened in the woods. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's a little bit of it. And then a lot of these places were segregated. Like if you look at Shenandoah National Park, they had colored picnic grounds and white picnic grounds. Um, Great Smoky Mountains National Park was supposed to be segregated, but they decided not to. 
So like even being in some of these spaces could be humiliating or embarrassing, or you always realize you were different. So like Shenandoah was segregated for a long time. I know it started in the 1920s. So you have, it is a generational thing in some ways. Like we don't go there because we don't want to be embarrassed or we don't go there because like you can't tell where the line is the way that you can with buildings, right? Like, you Mm -hmm. know, if you're going into a restaurant as a black person, you use the back door. If you're out in the woods, you don't necessarily know this is where I can go and this is where I can't, especially at that time when you're thinking about the green book and things like that. And then um, a little bit of it is, and my family is going to kill me for this, but I don't care. Black respectability. We don't. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I try to take my homegirls out and they're like, oh, but if it starts raining and what about my hair? This is especially when relaxer culture was a thing. You know, mm-hmm. like the natural movement has changed up a lot of that now. But it's like, oh, if I go out there and then my hair gets messed up, it's like, what do I do with this? You know, or whatever. And we're also worried about, I think, in many ways, being uncomfortable um, in some ways, because you've had to deal with, especially as a black person in America. And I say this because I can only speak to my experience. You're always worried about being watched. You're always worried about being uncomfortable. You're always worried about so many things. It's like when you think about winter sports, why would you go out there and and be cold voluntarily, right? I've never understood winter sports, to be honest. But I mean, I love them. Like, I snowshoe every chance I get. Like, it's, Oh, wow. It's just, oh, yeah. Like, I try it all. I, I mean, don't let this thick apparatus fool you. I am, like, out there paddleboarding and, like, snowshoeing and, like, big girl gets it in. Like, I'm, I'm going to try it. I have not Ooh. tried climbing yet, but there was a plus-size mountaineering course that I was signed Ooh. up pre-COVID, you know, canceling everything that we hoped for in 2020. Yeah, so like, I, I've got to try it. How, how do I know what I'm capable of or what I can do or learn about the world if I'm not at least giving it a shot? Right on. Oh my God, I have chills listening to you talk about trying things and doing some cold weather sports. Because again, like yeah. I grew up with the idea that black people don't do cold weather sports because we don't like cold weather. Yeah. So well, you mean, are inspiring the- me to change that. Yes. I mean, just give it, especially if you have the opportunity to like rent the proper gear and there's a whole conversation to have about money and accessibility and things like that. Yeah. Like that is very, very much valid. But like, I realized I didn't mind getting wet. Like when I had the right gear, like if it's raining, when I'm hiking, I have this particular Columbia jacket that I love and I, I don't mind going out because I have the right stuff and I don't have to worry about being cold and wet and nobody else is out there. And it's actually my favorite time to go because I really have the place to myself and it's quiet and the animals are doing their things and the birds are talking to one another and there are just fewer people. So like when you go out, when it's really cold, I wouldn't say go out when it's like a snowstorm and you can't see. There are so (laughs) many people. Well, cause it's true. Some people are like, Oh, this is exactly what she's talking about. At, at, nobody says you go out here. Right. You know, but like, it's just, there's something, especially like if you're able to get out, like right after dawn and then you've got fresh snow with your snowshoes and it's just you Mm. and you're breathing and sort of hearing the snow kind of fall off the trees. There's nothing like it in the world. It's the closest that you can get, I think, to peace in some way. Wow. Beautiful. I can, I just, I feel it as you're talking about it. I knew Jackie's the naturalista of the two of us. I had a yeah. feeling that that would really resonate yeah. with you. Yeah, and it does take waking up super early before everybody else is out and stuff like that. And I like sunrise hikes are my favorite. It is. For me, it is. Other people, it's like the midnight, you know, stuff. Like yeah. I'm going to dark sky zones and like seeing the Aurora Borealis in Nova Scotia. I've done it too. Like there are two completely <gasps> different ends of the spectrum. 
for this for different people and I'm one that's like willing to try it all with a yeah. you know an energy drink Same. I'm down I'm down to Coffee. figure it out <laughs> yeah. yeah so espresso um, you know yeah but everybody you find out what your preference is the more and more you do it but like I encourage just just try it try it twice because the first time you might be like oh this is the wrong gear or I should have done something different mm. but give it give it a shot twice and see how you truly feel about it and if it's not your jam that's okay Okay, Latreya, I'm going to take that challenge. I've been invited <laughs> to Big Bear by a friend of my fiance's. I'm going to go. Ooh. I'm going to see if I hate it. I, pro- I think I'm going to, but I'm going to go in with an open mind and no, try and get up yeah. early and hear the snowfall. Yeah, and, and report the thing back. is, you can, you can always go back to the cabin and have a cup of coffee and like read a book and be like, yep, did, I, I did the thing. I did it. <laughs> yeah, right. I did the thing and it was not my thing and that's all right. But like there, you can always go home. You can always go back. It's not like you have to die out there like sort of thing. You know what I mean? Everybody, it's just like, they think it's the end of the world. No, no, no. There's a cabin with a fire and like, you know, I don't know if you take your dog for the weekend or whatever, it doesn't have to be the end of it, but you do, you know, making the effort. It, you could really change the way you think about yourself. I love that. Well, well said. Yeah. Okay, I hate to take us from this happy point to a bit of a depressing point, but we're going to we're going to switch gears a little bit because black people used to be connected to nature. We used to have a connection to land because of a little thing called slavery. We were forced to commune with nature because we were human machines and used to tend the land. It was also during this time that white people did not have a connection with nature because they didn't have to because they weren't forced to be in it. And then that switched once slavery ended and times changed. When did Black people's relationship with nature degrade and white people's relationship with nature upgrade? Okay, so there are sort of two tracks for this, and there there are historians that can better answer this with dates for you, but like there are two versions of of this that I'm thinking of. Being a Southerner, um, I'm thinking Great Migration, obviously, like after Reconstruction, um, you know. So just to give people a little bit of a timeline, um, you know, you have the Civil War. Uh, black people are emancipated. They're supposed to be able to vote for the first time. They some do for about ten years, and you see a couple of black senators going to Congress. So this gets you to about eighteen eighty, eighteen ninety, right? Just in this this amount of time. But then there's just like what happened when we had President Obama. Um, you know, there is a, a version of a white lash and white supremacists start intimidating black people when they see that they're getting power and they're not dying off the way that they thought they would be and they're amassing money and this is the period that you sort of see between 1890 and about 1920 with obviously the Tulsa massacre the Okoli massacre the Rosewood massacre burning down all of these black vibrant areas that cause people to migrate north Mm. so um, that's kind Mm. of you know they have they're, they're close to the land, they're building businesses, they have communities and all of these things. And then white supremacy kind of intimidates them to the point that they decide to leave and seek opportunities other, elsewhere. And those are off, often in cities that have factories and industry, you know, steel, we're thinking Pittsburgh, we're thinking New York City, we're thinking Chicago and Detroit and cars and all of that sort of stuff. So you, you have that in some ways, excuse me, um, for Southerners that way. Um, and then on the separate end of it, I'm thinking about somewhere like New York City, um, mm. where there was great, you know, industry and trade and merchants, white merchants, obviously, 
making money as immigration starts and people start coming to these cities, you have this idea of white flight. They start seeing cities as dirty, filthy places. They start searching for somewhere else in order to have, you know, their idea of peace and untouched wilderness, you know, and that's part of this whole westward expansion, um, creating parks out west sort of jam and all of this that's happening. Some of this is happening concurrently, um, you know, between sort of the northern um, ideals and southern violence happening sort of at the same time. But, you know, they're looking at, at first, white people moved from down near Wall Street to up near Harlem, you know, one, one, I lived on 139. So that area was originally those, those homes were built by white people. Once they left them in search of greener pastures, white people occupied them and it was called Strivers Row because those black professionals strive to pay the rent. So you have that, you see the creation of Central Park um, mm-hmm. at this time, um, which actually there was a black community there called Seneca Village. Like there were people living there. This wasn't just unoccupied space. Yes. Because black people yeah. own land originally where Central Park was and yes. they were forced off of it. Yes. And now they're doing archaeological excavations to figure out what their lives were like. They found really beautiful, um, expensive pattern china and things like that. These were not, um, you know, people when, I, when we think about emancipated people or people during Reconstruction, we really think about them wearing potato sacks and just fighting for their lives. And that's not what this is, especially in somewhere like uh, New York City, right? right? But yeah, so I mean, they, but they yeah. it's just like manifest destiny, guys. Um, you know, they're <laughs> like, oh, we want, we want this, we want to make this a pure place, so you have to go, right? Um, and you know, all of the sort of ideological reasons. So there are no straight uh, streets in Central Park. Like, if you were trying to get from one side, like from uh, the west side of town to the east side, and I know this because I used to have to do it for work. You can't. The streets don't line up. You'll start on 79th. And you'll end up on 81st because they want you to wander. Like oh. the idea is that, yeah, so it, like it's not built for efficiency. It's, it's sort of <laughs> taking you through this natural guide. There's no grid system inside Central Park. And it's very confusing to tourists. It's very confusing when you first move there. I'm but sure. like all of these sort of ideas that they have about controlled nature show up because they've re- removed indigenous people and they've removed black people and recast this in their own image of what they think whiteness and engagement with nature is supposed to look like. Wow. So you, yeah, you have that. And obviously you have this group of black people that has, you know, left their roots in the South because one, because they've had to, two, because there are very hard memories associated with it. Three, because like, if you're working 12 hour shifts in a factory, chances of you having your own garden or engaging with nature and doing all of these things in a dense area is much harder. Obviously we're seeing sort of, the change with that now with apiaries on top of buildings and things like that and container gardens and stuff like that. But that is um, sort of a return or, or an attempt to return to um, some of these original notions that people had, but that they could not express in fiction. So that's a little bit of it. And then also the idea that like uh, at one point undeveloped land was not worth a lot. And now mm. that people praise cities and you have, all of this culture, uh, you know, in them, the like the land outside of them, and you're seeing this with the pandemic, right? With everybody mm-hmm. fleeing major metropolitan areas, it's driving up rural housing market. Like our our market here is booming. I'm in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and we're dealing with this capitalistic New South anyway. Um, but you know, everything here is worth a lot more now that people are like, oh, I don't have to live in New York City to do my job because everybody's remote. Let me get out of here to this place that seems really, really cheap to them 
but it's very hard. So you're seeing sort of that that forcing mm, out I of see. people of color that was happening in Brooklyn um, a couple of years ago after 9-11. You're now seeing that happen in pockets of the South and probably pockets, I mean, because it's happening in Oakland, that idea of like gentrification and moving people out um, is happening everywhere, but you're you're seeing it. I mean, this place within the last 10, 15 years is unrecognizable. Um, and that's why I'm trying to write down the bones of it because by the time I have kids and they're conscious, none of this will, there'll be a five guys on every block and a Jersey Mike's and all of those things. We have Shake Starbucks. Shack. Yeah. Oh yeah. We have got like six Starbucks now. And like, that was like when I was in college, like you couldn't even get them. You know, you had to, like New York city was yeah. like the only place that had them. And now you can go to the grocery store and there's a Starbucks inside. So like those, Crazy. those sorts of things, but you're lo- missing the mom and pop farmers. You're missing the mom and pop restaurants. They can't afford it you know, yeah. anymore. So rent has gone from being $1,000 a month downtown to $10,000 a month for restaurants. Mm-hmm. So Crazy. when you're dealing with that type of uh, thing, it, it's again, divorcing you from whatever your heritage was, your dreams were, your connection to land um, at times, because when the prices go up for these places, um, sometimes if you can't afford the taxes, that's the end of it. That's what's right. happening to the Gullah Geechee near the coast. Um, you know, all, all it takes is them to, you know, you paid a thousand dollars for this land or whatever. Now it's worth $370,000 because the condo is going around it. Can, can you afford those types of taxes? No. Well, then it no longer belongs to you. So there's always this idea of shifting. It's like, there's, you cannot make more land. Like in America, that is not what's happening. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so if you own the land in the end, you have power. This is something that was very much understood. Um, when you're looking at the Constitution, and it used to be land-owned, land-owning white men, right, mm-hmm. that got to vote. And it's the same idea that if you have land, you have power. Um, and so how do we keep people from having that thing? How do we keep playing this um, shell game, you know, the little, where it's the coconut shells and there's a ball underneath it, you're trying to figure out where, yeah, it's that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's, yeah. that's, it's whatever we can do to commodify and monetize and keep people from um, things that, you know, at some point it was, it was their history or, or an understanding. And also America just loves, I realize it's a long answer and I apologize. No, that's fine. Um, but, you know, but I was like, America loves erasure because it allows uh... us to believe that we can be, that we can be anything or anybody, right? Um, and so it's like, you, nobody wants to talk about this reconstruction white lash. It's starting to happen where people are talking about it. Right. But I was like, ooh, we did this. We did this 100 years ago. Like next week, I'm leaving to do a story in Ocoee, Florida. And in 1920, after the election, two black people voted and um, white supremacists burned down this entire town and killed 60 people and stuck them in a mass grave. So like this is this idea of election violence is not new. This idea of the, the sort of um, threatening of white power is not new. No, this is new. We just decided to forget because we need right. people to you know, to believe that they can work their way out of what I consider to be a trap now. Mm. Now that I'm like old enough, I'm 34, it feels like a trap, right? There are a couple of superstars that get out of it. But for your average person in America, there was an Atlantic article and it was saying that like, if you are on the cusp of poverty or born in poverty, it takes 20 years of nothing going wrong in order to wait to work yourself up from poverty to like lower middle class Mm -hmm. who has 20 years of nothing going wrong, especially when the the average expectancy 
of life for a black woman is like 78 years or something like right like who gets a stretch that long um so you know right yeah my fiance and i were talking last night about the american dream and if it still exists and like to black people the american dream is way far gone like that shit is for the birds at this point but there are many people that still hold on to the essence of the american dream as though it is still possible in our modern day world and i feel terrible for those people i don't want to dash their dreams but also like the american dream is a fucking sham and 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 should be destroyed i yeah so there's this quote and i wish i remember who said it and i'll have to google it at some point and maybe tell you so you can put it in the show notes but they were like people that believe like that is why white supremacy has such a foothold on particularly poor rural white people is because they believe that they can be anything. And right now they're just embarrassed, inconvenienced billionaires. And like their time is coming. Yeah. You're just a couple of good Mm. choices and a lot of hard work away from being a millionaire a couple times over. Right. Yeah. Right. And and I mean, but like, and we see it even sometimes in like what's being sold to us on Instagram and things like that. Right. And this life that like we now know, understand, I think, um, being a little older is not real, but like, it's if not you're possible. Fa- yeah, you know, I was like, oh, girl, how many filters are on this? Like, you know right. what I mean? Like it, but until you get to a certain point, and I have to say this, you know, I thought that like, I was just making all the wrong choices for a while. because I have an Ivy League degree, right? I went and got a master's. I'm smart. I'm capable. I'm hardworking. You know, I've, and I've said this before, I paid for an Ivy League school in watermelons and okra, right? In terms of like, trying to take out a few loans and stuff like I hustled and I was like how did my like I've never had a job that has um hired me full-time I've never had benefits I've never had vacation time and I was like what did I do that was so wrong in my life that has kept me from getting these things that it seems other people have and I was like a lot of people were hired by their friends or by parents of their friends it's in some ways it is nepotism right in some ways it is just that like there was no right answer. Like, you know, in this multiple choice, like none of them were going to be the right option. Right. Um, mm. Because I, I went to school, did really well, came out of school right at the beginning of the recession. Oh, and so like, yeah. you know what I mean? And so there's so many of us and I've, I've started to see it now because a lot of my friends, particularly um, black friends are, I was like, you're so, you're so talented. And we're just starting to get, where we should have been we're we're in our 30s and we're just starting to get where we should have been when we were 24 Mm -hmm. and you're like what happened yeah you know and the recession happened for a lot of us right um you know sick parents happened right um being unhoused happened for a lot of reasons right um you know domestic violence and dealing with the ideas of being unworthy um and having your material value attached to what you do happen mm. um, and you have to work yourself through those things, understand those yeah. things and um, overcome those things to get anywhere. And that takes a minute. Time. <laughs> Real long answer. My bad. No, no, uh, it's no. great. You gave us a lot to process and ponder. This is often a good sign when Jack and I are like, Whew, okay, Quiet. take a minute to let it all seep in. <laughs> Christian will edit out this, this long pause anyway. So it's totally fine. Yeah, but thank you I for that. It. You gave us a lot yeah. of really interesting, sort of hard to digest, but incredibly necessary points that 
we needed to hear it. I think our listeners will totally value. So thank you for that. Thank you. Definitely. I feel like I just lived through a lot, Um, which is, which is what's happening. So yeah, a lot is happening. I also had two therapy sessions this week because I felt like I needed them and y'all are probably getting some of that too. Great. Awesome. Loving it. I was like, this is, let them use you like give give them give the people what they need because not everybody can write that check and that's Mm -hmm. okay so 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 true that that's often what sometimes this podcast does feel like you know after we're done with the with the show we're like ah yes (laughs) um i I I mean nobody's saying these things no no i was gonna say it was one of those like you know, something that I wrote about in the second piece after we're here, you just don't see it. Like, you know, I write a couple of things that I needed to hear in my life. And that's often what I'm doing. I'm trying to be the adult I needed when I was younger or trying to, you know, express some of those things that I didn't have language for when I was younger. Cause like, you know, I'm just, I was an AOL kid. Like either you were talking (laughs) on the phone, you could not talk on the phone and like use your computer at the same time. So there was so, yes. Yes. So like, I mean, I remember I remember the sound of dial-up. Y'all don't, but yes, I do. No, I do. I do. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I was like, I know I'm a little bit older than y'all. Um, but slow ass internet. Yes. And so, like the the transfer of ideas and the way that we do it now, I marvel at what kids have now because like there was so much that we just didn't have language for. And I think about a lot of the icons that have passed: Dorothy Dandridge, Billie Holiday, some of these old they didn't have language for what they were feeling or going through and it left them very isolated. Like the fact that we can talk about mental health mm-hmm. and wellness and all that, like that's not in my grandmother's lexicon, right? Yeah, That's definitely. not even really in my mom. I mom's. feel the same. Yeah, same. so that's yeah. where I'm kind of like, girl, get get this therapy, get what I've learned. Yeah, and like hopefully let it all out. Be for you, useful to you, yeah. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, thank you so much for that. Yeah, that's, that's definitely, I think, especially now in 2020, what a year it's been, but the amount of healing everyone has to do. I mean, even if nothing happened, anything with COVID or anything, but just being stuck at home, you know, like mm-hmm. that must have been tough for a lot of people. You have to sit with yourself. Um, oh, you do. And you just face yourself, right? Yeah, At one point yeah. or another. And, and that's that, difficult. Yeah, that makes you or break you, breaks you, especially if you're not used to spending a lot of time alone, if you're out right. bopping, or if you're like job, for some people, it's like their job. And especially if you're in PR or something like that, the validation comes from doing a job that engages with other people. And when you can't do that and don't have that same type of feedback, how do you like compensate? A lot of us, you know, are just struggling through. I spend a lot of time alone. And so like, in some ways I'm like, I'm okay. But then other moments I'm like, check on your introvert friend. Oh she's yes. Not, she's not as good as you think yes. she is. Right. Um, right. You know, it's, same. it's different. Cause yeah, I soothe myself with art. You can't go to art museums. I usually try to like eat somewhere really cool when I'm, I'm in about, I'm on the road about six months a year. And like Ooh. last year I hit like wow. 39 cities. And so, I mean, when you want to talk about like eating something interesting, cause like they send me on assignments and I work all the time because I have no life because I'm compensating for things. Right. <laughs> um, like, there's a reason you girl. True, true, girl. Oh, my right? love for you knows so, no bounds. I love that. But, but, it, but it's true. You know, I was, it, 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 it is what it is. I'm grateful that I have the life that I have and people allow me to tell stories. So some of it is, is that, but I also realize, like I spend a lot of time by myself and I'm comfortable with that, but I was not that way in college coming out of it and stuff like that. But you just have to learn to sit with yourself and that's hard. Cause like I'm yeah. living in my childhood home and like there's some ghosts here and some stuff. 
And you just have to be willing to sit with it and write it down or engage with it or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a lot of people are dealing with that during the pandemic. I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, I wanted to take you back just a little bit. You did touch upon this earlier and you do talk a lot about it in, in your article, um, how national parks have not always been welcoming to black people. Um, Can you, can you tell the audience a little bit about a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, So there, there are a couple of ways that national parks have not been friendly, like to black people, but like also just to, um, I would say marginalized communities across the board. Um, so I, I will say that, like, I think a lot about language as a writer and the idea that all of these are in English, right? They're not uh-huh. really accessible to people that, you know, if English is not your first language, right? Um, some of these places um, are not necessarily um welcome welcoming of people because of segregation as we talked about a little bit before um something that other people think about a lot is um the fact that certain park rangers are law enforcement rangers and these people mm. carry guns oh and so they are like the police of the woods and so never thought police, about that yeah so if a police officer is shooting you in the middle of a major city and it's videotaped, and you still cannot get justice. What happens to you in the middle of the woods with no videotape and no cell phone service to call for help? Ah, that's dangerous. And- yeah, and like they don't necessarily make themselves, I think certain parks are trying to change this with, you know, introducing the rangers on Instagram and things like that and showing that they do have a personality and they're meant to be out here for the safety and security and rescue of people in these parks. But also, people don't understand. These parks are huge. So my my home park, basically, that I was writer in residence of, Great Smoky Mountains National Park, 800 square miles. Huge park. Yeah. And this is this is not a this is not when you're thinking about um, size, really, like I'm pretty sure Olympic is bigger. A lot of these national parks are much larger than this park, but huge, huge, huge park. Um, And so, you know, you're thinking about what your engagement is like with these people. Um, you know, I've had some, they're, they're not always warm people, if that makes sense. And like going to, and sometimes like, that's just their personality, but I'm like, Ooh, but why are you in the visitor center where people are asking you the questions though? Like like, maybe this is not, yeah, I was like, yeah, I was like, maybe this is not your skill set. Like, and that's okay, but let's find something that is a better fit. Um, you know, and I've had, I've, I've had a couple conversations with, um, some of the supervisors, and some of that goes uh, ignored when you make those complaints. Because I, I actually made a formal complaint in the Smokies about um, someone, and it just never went. Never, and never like, oh, received. she's yeah. Well, they're like, oh, she's retiring soon. It'll be fine. I was like, it's not fine because that retired ranger then becomes a volunteer that engages with people that have questions, and it just continues perpetuating this cycle. Yeah, right. Yikes. And then um, in the Smokies, and I have to speak specifically to the Smokies, partially because that's the park that I spent the most time in. I'm there monthly. Um, you know, even though I've done Rocky Mountain and I've done the Everglades and things like that, understanding trends over a period of time, I never want to just generalize. Um, that's really sort of, you know, I try not to make snap judgments. But, you know, you also have this history of violent erasure of people. So, you know, when you're talking about the Smokies, um, obviously Cherokee, North Carolina is on the other side of, on one side, the North Carolina side of the park. The Eastern Band of Cherokee, their um, lands are there, so they talk about them. What they don't talk about, and I, I say it a little bit in this second essay that was published last month, 
is I went to this park expecting to just be able to pick up a book about Black people in the smoke, right? Or being able to go into the visitor center and read a panel about who lived here, right? There's nothing. There's absolutely no. Yeah, there's nothing. You can't buy a book. You can't watch a video. You can't see a pamphlet. There's nothing. And you have to realize, well, because people loved this, and this is what we sort of call the modern lens of, of fallacy in some ways, you know, when, when, so Great Smoky Mountains Park, National Park was acquired, there were obviously people living there because in the East, most of this is occupied, um, you know, land, uh, white people have enslaved people. We love this idea that, you know, white people were so poor, they couldn't afford slaves at, they could not afford 400 slaves. It was not a plantation, um, you know, economy, but they had four, they had enough to run their mills and serve their families and things right. like that. So, you know, in this idea of covering up slavery in general mm-hmm. that happens around the time that this park was founded, um, they're, they're not doing that. They're destroying the African-American towns that were there. Man. They're not documenting any of the stuff that was there. It wasn't worth it to them. Like, you have to remember at this point, Black people still cannot vote. Like, there are so many protections. You're in the middle of Jim Crow. So it, they didn't see these things as having value. Black people in this area are just slightly above that three-fifths of a person that right. they were, you know, during enslavement. Yeah. So, you know, there's there's a lot of that that's happening that we're now trying to undo. Um, you know, they didn't keep records. The, the only records that I have, and this is as a researcher, I was like, ooh, this is going to be part of my project. I have to kind of work on this a little bit. And there um, is a graduate student that's also doing the research. The park is just starting to do the research now. But as an independent researcher, you can move much faster than the government. Um, yes. So I, I want to give them props, though. They are working on it. I don't want to say that they're not. But, you know, that's within they just started having that conversation within the last five years. Right. About something that's been a hundred year problem. Um, you know, so there are these mass graves where they just kind of threw black people in them. And now they're doing ground penetrating radar to try to figure out how many people are there. That sort of stuff. The only documentation that you can find about black people in this area is what we call a slave schedule. And it gives you, it's like a census. Um, so whenever they I do the see. census, they give the name of the owner and their household and their kids and, you know, their ages and names and all that stuff. But when you get to the slaves, it will have whether they were black or mulatto. And we know how we get mulatto mm-hmm. um, people and um, their sex and their age. That's it. That's all you often get. And so I went to the archive. I mean, for 800 square miles, all they had was um, one sheet of a slave schedule. Right. Um, And so you could go back and find out who the owner was and then see if you could find the names of these enslaved people. So my major Uh, project coming out of that was following the life of this one enslaved woman called Sook Turner, um, who eventually is emancipated, continues to live in this community. And her um, son uh, starts working in lumber camps and that. So I found the area where she was enslaved, um, the house she moved into afterwards, and I visited her grave. Wow. So that's like the type of research for this. But yeah, so like, I mean, it's just the idea that like you don't even exist in this space. We have completely wiped you from this area. It's probably the most violent thing um, about this area because it allows them to deny and they sort of gaslight you. And this is both from certain members of the rangers in the park, but then also from this community at large that loves their Confederate flags. There are a couple Confederate flag stores in Gatlinburg, um, you know, they embrace that, um, you know, sort of lumberjack, like they love their Buffalo plaid and Confederate flags as if Buffalo, like, and this idea of like being Paul Bunyan with like moonshine sort of thing. And I was like, but Paul Bunyan was the Midwest. 
He was not even here. Yeah, that archetype so, really you know. resonates with white men. The Paul Bunyan archetype. I've never understood it to this day. Yeah, and I like serving breakfast in cast iron skillets. Like they love, <laughs> they're like pancake things. Like they're they obsessed. Like, they're like they just take, right? They just take. Yeah, and they take yeah, and they, they take yeah. and they take. And then they put it in a blender and yeah. like welcome to go. authenticity. And I'm yeah. like this, but this is not it though. Yeah, you know, certain parts of it are historically accurate but like serving me six pancakes in a cast iron skillet like as a man in some flannel like not from this region like so wrong i i struggle let's play wilderness yeah you know well because it is it's a tourist trap jimmy buffett has a margaritaville there ripley's believe it or not is on the other side dollywood is right there in pigeon forge you know with the it used to be called the dixie stampede and now it's called the dolly stampede oh Oh, that's right yeah, so there's a whole lot happening in this <laughs> yes. in this area, and it's not meant for black people. No, you know? yeah, clearly. Um, yeah, so yeah. you know they're trying to make it more consumer friendly in some ways, uh, but that's the thing; it's consumer friendly. Not they just want your money, uh, not authentic. Yeah, but it is consumer friendly. Um, you know, money, so money, money. there's yeah, it's but that's we're going back to money and land and consumerism and like everything right so that was another long-winded that's okay but like those are some of the the things in national parks that are often considered to be um you know inhospitable too that's before we ever talk about knowledge of plants poison oak poison ivy bears mountain lions and things like that which aren't scary in some ways because plants have certain characteristics animals have certain behaviors like that uh mountain lion video they're like oh she's stalking him i was like ah that's not what's happening here <laughs> she's protecting her babies because you decided you were going to video them instead of moving on mm-hmm. um you know but i was like if she was stalking you you would have known until she was on top of you like that's <laughs> animal behavior follows predictable patterns human behavior is much harder to discern right yes. and it feels random and i was talking about this i was like we talk about random acts of kindness we also have to talk about random acts of violence. Oh, right? yeah. There are certain things, even if you do everything right, not everything that happens to you is going to be right. There are going to be some things that are not your fault that you spend a lot of time analyzing. I think we can all say this as people of color that we've done it. Mm-hmm. We've replayed moments in our head. For sure. And like, there's nothing that you could have done to make this outcome any different than it was because whatever was going on was not actually ever about you. Right. 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 Totally. Um, yeah. I, I'm a low-key Dolly Parton fan and I've always wanted to go to Dollywood, but there's no way I'm making it because of, um, just, I, Dollywood doesn't feel like a place for people of color. Uh, so yeah, I'm going so, to pass on that. <laughs> I, she's on my list of places. Dollywood is on my place of list, list of places to go. I didn't have time when I was there and I'm like, I have to go see what this is about because she, she's just such an interesting character. She is. And Did like, you? I really... Did yeah. you listen to the Dolly Parton podcast? No, I didn't. So I will send I, you a link I, to it. Yes, please. Uh, and Sarah Smarsh has a book that comes out in the next, I think, two weeks or something like that. That is all about her. But did you see is this little clip? And it brings me so much joy every time. And I've shared it with all my femme friends. And I'm like, look at the energy in this video where it's her and Patti LaBelle. And they're using their acrylics yes. to create a beat. Yeah. And they sing over the uh-huh. top of it. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, it's, in some ways, she's so authentic and she's so real. And um, she's come out about Black Lives Matter. I think she is, and people are going to pan me for this, but I, I do mean it. It's the closest I can give her to an invite to the cookout. A well-meaning white woman 
That doesn't mean that it always worked out for her, but like that doesn't mean that she is not aware of what she has and is trying to make a mm, difference. Totally. Right? Yeah. Like, you know, she it's this idea that like she took the Dolly Stampede. So for people that don't understand what the Dixie Stampede was, it was like a dinner theater show and the North would fight the South mm-hmm. on the stage. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the South won. Yeah. And what Mm-hmm. This idea of revisionist history, history <laughs> and performance and things like that. Right. And so I don't know. I, I'm not sitting through it to figure out what happens when the South wins. Right. Like, so right. That I can't. I'm good. Right. Maybe it is just a celebration. But like as a black person, there's too much. Like we already have Lovecraft country. We've got Black Mirror. We've got all this other stuff. I can't. I can't put too myself much. in that space. Right. So, you know, but her idea of, you know, making sure that Dixie is not offensive trying to speak out about Black Lives Matter. Who knows? She may have even changed the show. Like, there are some things that she is doing that mm-hmm. visible celebrities are not doing that we right. have to acknowledge. So I, that's what I'll leave with. And I mean, whew, she can write some songs. Oh yes. When you talked about the acrylics, that's how she uh, started writing 9 to 5. Where she was like yes. shaking her acrylics and I stumble out of bed and I tumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition. Like she was just like playing it on her yep. acrylic. So I love that you brought that up. And I will send you that link because I binge that podcast. It's so good. Oh my gosh. Okay. I'll have to like set aside time. I've got a road trip coming up. And so maybe that's why I'm hearing it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So racism, segregation, white people doing white people things. Those are all reasons how our relationship with our relationship, meaning black people's relationship with, with community, with uh, nature fell apart. But we also play a role in it too, because we perpetuate these harmful stereotypes. What changes can we make in our own community to dead the stereotypes about black people and nature so that they don't keep holding back generations that come after us? So I think first we have to acknowledge that like, or be able to stop those, those gut reactions of like, Ooh, black people don't do this. And I'm like, okay, it does not have to be, you don't have to go summit a 14er, right? Like let's break down some of these <laughs> thoughts, right? Because that's what people think, you know, one of my friends is like, oh, are you going to go climb Everest now? And I was like, I have no interest in climbing Everest, but this selfie right off this little pull off <laughs> in the Smokies is going to be super cute, right? Like, I mean, it, it feels like these big, massive, hard, arduous things, but we have to like first define what nature is, define what being in nature can be. For me, a lot of times, I mean, it's just a walk by the creek some days. Mm. Like, I don't get to go wander in the mountains and play around all the time when I'm on deadline, but I can take 15 minutes to go for a walk or something like that and notice the plants around me, notice the birds around me. So I think part of it is is sometimes, like, changing that definition and, like, investigating why. And y'all have done this um, on the podcast. You know, why are we being fed these things, right? Mm. Um, and people are starting to see it when we start talking about food justice, you know, and food deserts and sort of changing the narrative in that way. And I'm hoping that people see the outdoors and nature as an extension of that, because I come from a foraging family um, in a lot of ways, you know, and I mean, and in some ways, fishing is sort of a version of, of foraging, right? It's getting food from the environment that, that you can put to use in your life. So, you know, but like crab apples, persimmons, pawpaws, all that stuff, like very rarely as a family, do we go into the woods and not come out with something delicious? Um, so, you know, it's like if you can start seeing it there and learning, you know, um, what's good to eat, what to avoid, something that everybody has their entry point to it. Something that like I've been encouraging um, different nonprofit organizations to do. And some of them are doing it on their own. First, they're like, 
Black Outside Inc. is there, Black Girls Trekking, yes. Outdoor Journal Tour. There are some outdoor Afro. Like, they're great. If you're a group person, there are great mm. things to join and say, hey, I'm going to try this. Take a friend with you or whatever. Or say, okay, we're going to get together as a group. Sometimes if my friends ask me, I'm like, okay, I'm going out. Do you want to come with me or whatever? I have a spare tent and a sleeping pad you can use or whatever. Um, and things like that. So some of it is like if you have an outdoor friend being like, hey, what should I take or where should I go? If I want to spend a couple of hours, you know, out in the wilderness, but I don't want to be like strenuous or anything like that. Because people often associate the outdoors with being uncomfortable all the time. It's yeah. Hot, there's bugs. There's all. Stick me. I, I'm, that, I'm that way. <laughs> but it doesn't it doesn't have to be that way. It does take a little bit of research or knowing someone that you can ask. But, you know, understanding that, like, what's being sold to us is not the only way it has to be, I think is really important. And then just starting small, starting with your backyard, right? Um, starting with, you know, um, going up the street to the local garden or the park or something like that and, like, finding your 10, moments, 10 minutes of peace. So, like, when I was really anxious and sort of struggling with my mental health when I was younger, like, I mean, the reason I started 10 Seconds of Zen on my Instagram is like my therapist was like, just take 10 seconds. Just like take 10 seconds to save your life and just clear out some of the noise, right? And then it Love builds that. to 30 seconds and then a minute and then five minutes and 10 minutes. And now I spend whole days by myself and I don't hate myself. And that's like mm. a really remarkable thing um, because I don't know, I did. I know I didn't have that when I was younger, um, you know, but it, it takes building up to it. And that's with just about any skill. Nobody becomes Gabby Douglas or Simone Biles after their first black backflip and like the idea that you can do that like for some people maybe it is possible but like you're setting yourself up against a monumental task to yeah. look at it that way and I don't think it's fair to themselves it's not fair to the environment they're in because like I and I say this to people all the time in order to like save this planet you're going to have to understand black people's um role and agency in all of this and like not be offensive to us because y'all need us mm -hmm. i mean in terms of like right. lion's share of outdoor recreation but also in terms of understanding um climate change and looking to indigenous people and people of color for um skills and things and knowledge that they've had ancestral knowledge in order to turn things around mm -hmm. right um you know you really like they they need us right and but we have to understand some of the power that that we have because it's been minimized for us for so long. Right. Ooh, well said. I also caught that Freudian slip, Simone Biles, black flip. Someone quick, tell her she, <laughs> she has to copyright that. That has to be her Oh, term. my God. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, she's the greatest of all time. Like, no question about it. Absolutely. Well, you just spoke really beautifully about you, about your family and your connection to nature and the outdoors. You also speak really beautifully about it in the article. And I found you talking about your cultural con connection to nature really moving mainly because I feel like when we read outdoor articles a lot of them can feel very framed in a broy sort of Patagonia how can I slay nature what can I do in nature to enhance yeah. me and you came at it more from an angle of heritage this is the, the land that created me and shaped who I was angle for those of us that do not feel like we have a family-based nature bond or any sort of nature story, how can we start to create one so that we can pass it down to another generation? Ooh, that, I, that's a really good question. I see there being two parts to this, so I will sort of split it up. The first one, I mean, 
<sighs> what Manifest Destiny and white supremacy has done to the outdoors has done us a great justice, right? Like there's this idea of conquering a peak, right? Like all of these really dominant, violent um, applications of language to a place and, um, you know, even the way things are named, right? Um, so there's this trail. I'm going to, because I'm Southern and I've also only seen it written and not um, pronounced. It's like the Numu, uh, it's called the People's Trail, basically. But like, because John Muir walked it one time, they call it the John Muir Trail. Uh, and so they're, they're trying uh, to reclaim the indigenous name for it, right? right. Um, and in climbing, you have the name, these uh, really offensive routes. So like, if you climb it a certain way the first time, you get to name it, right? And so there are things called like slave fingers and different, like, yeah, like all sorts of really offensive Jeez. Yeah, like things. Yeah. And so there are a couple of articles that have come out and there are people that are trying to rename. And there's a movement to rename some of these, um, you know, obviously for a long time, indigenous people that um, found this land either to be sacred, to live on or to um, have sacred um, rights on have been erased from it. So, you, you know, now you have apps like Whose Land that um, sort of tells you like this used to be, um, or this is Catawba land. This is Cherokee ah, land, right? Cause those people dang. still exist. We like to pretend yeah. that indigenous people don't or that we've wiped them all away from disease and all of those things because it allows us not to think about um, the history of space um, and America's role in trying to decimate a people and a culture, mm -hmm. um, which <laughs> which happens time and time and time again. Daily, uh, in fact. Which, yeah, you know, I mean, you think yeah. about Japanese internment, you think about, um, you know, yeah. indigenous people being put on reservations, you think about the electoral violence happening against Black people, right? Like, it just keeps happening. We just think, especially if it's not happening to us at the moment, yeah. we're good. Yeah. We're good. Right. You know, well, like you said earlier, none of this is actually new, right? And it's just, it's just kind of, restarted re-over redone just like renamed renamed just loops right. over again yeah. different generation different people different era but same thing yeah um so that's like the first part of it is like that is very much that sort of conquer culture mm -hmm. is packaged and it's slick it's cute it is it gets lots of like it's, yeah, it, it makes you lots feel good. of like on yeah. instagram yeah you know you see this feel person powerful. on top of a mountain yeah you know and it's it's just like wow look at this landscape Mm -hmm. Look at what they've risen above. Look at what they're on the top right. of, you know? And so like, we love those shots, like just the imagery and what it symbolizes. Mm -hmm. We like that. And so when thinking, like, I think a, very deeply about place and connection. And you were asking about like, how do people that don't necessarily have a bond with the land that, you know, because I come out of this sort of, um, this region shaped me sort mm -hmm. of thing. Um, part of it becomes, and right now I am, fascinated feels like the wrong word but fascinated with like Colorado because it always tries to kill me and I'm like have I how do I like how do I um continue surviving this place right and like what does it have to teach me so I've had like um it, it's like a very severe version of altitude sickness where ah, um your brain swells so I have a friend that lives at like 12,000 feet um and I am from sea level so that's 12,000 feet more than I'm used to. Wow. Very different. <laughs> yeah, very, very different. Um, you know, and so I get the headaches and I try to hydrate and kind of compensate for this thing. And, and like one of the best, most vulnerable essays I ever wrote, I wrote up there when I thought I was going to die. And I was like, wow. we should probably not do this 
very often. But like, this is something that was obviously in me that I was ashamed of, that I needed to deal with, um, that I had not dealt with in some ways. So you don't necessarily want to have that type of relationship with the landscape. Obviously, I've been doing this for 30 years. You're so like, like a method. You're like a method writer. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, well, because my body and my name are all that I have. Right. Mm. Like, I, that's how I look at this. And that's why I try very hard to stick to the truth. And that's why I try not to lie in my personal life, even like mm. little white lies and things like that, because yeah. my, putting my body on the line for all of these stories is my job. And my name is everything. When right, I have right, nothing right. else, those are the two things. Like if they take my house, if they take whatever, this is, this is what I have. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in terms of finding this place, I'm like, where, in terms of finding sort of a place that you can relate to, what are you curious about? You know, where have you always wanted to go? You know, what does that say about you? What happens when you make it there? How does it make you feel? Um, you know, some of it is is that if you have the capacity to take a trip to build these sort of nature experiences, you know, and sometimes I live through what I see on Instagram. There are some flower fields that I cannot wait to get into yeah. because it looks so peaceful, right? And sort of like, this idea of like what imagery stirs you and why, right? Yeah. How can you find those sorts of things close to where you live? So, I mean, I love flowers and I feel like that is like embedded in my DNA. My grandmother was a flower lady. She gave me my first carnivorous plant, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And so I love the Atlanta Botanical Gardens. I don't even live in Georgia, but I have a membership <laughs> to the Botanical Gardens because like it gives me that feeling of being in a flower field. Like I can't get to Amsterdam right now. I can't get to these beautifully curated, you know, Japanese gardens and things of my fantasy. But like this is somewhere that I can go that's relatively close. It's about six hours round trip and just be for a little bit and watch the mm. seasons change and watch how I'm changing at the same time. So sometimes that can happen in your city park. Sometimes for people that will happen through their kids and what their kids start discovering and their relationships to them. So there are many, many ways to do it. Um, And some people keep a journal of it. I'm not good at that because like, I just don't. I'm a writer. Yeah, that's what I was like. (laughs) I write write all the time. So like, I take a lot of photos. I take like 400, Uh. like, especially if I'm on assignment or if I'm like out doing a walk with flowers or something, I'll take three or 400 photos, like easily. Wow. Because it's a very different um, mechanism of storytelling for me and understanding and documenting yeah. for me because I'm a writer. So, right. you know, but like my friends that are poets keep observation journals because it's a very linear, different type mm. of writing for them. So everybody's going to have their way of engaging with this thing. And, you know, for some of my friends that are much more into their physicality, they'll take a yoga mat out and they'll sit and they'll be like, where is the tension in my body? And how do I let go of it through listening to this bird song or listening to there's a lot of ways to do it you just have to find the way that works for you and, mm-hmm. and that's just like starts with knowing yourself and or trying to. so every answer is just like i gotta like pause and i gotta like take it do in a little prayer <laughs> <laughs> so good i'm just telling you what i know like i don't know i just i try to live it i try to yeah. live it and then i try yeah. to articulate sort of what i've learned of all these years of hard living and like I mean, I won't pretend that I haven't had some. They're hilarious now. They were hilarious <laughs> then, actually, too. So I got stuck in my hip, uh, up to my hips in quicksand <gasps> one time. And I was like, oh, my God, at least take a picture. Nobody's going to believe this. This is going to be such a funny story. And I did. And I lost my boots in the quicksand. I got out oh of it, though. Oh, my but it's, gosh. It's, I mean, it's amazing. And it's just like, welcome, welcome. And my trail name is Indiana Jenkins. 
Um, yes! And, uh, and it's because, so I've been like stuck in, I've been stuck in quicksand three times. Wow. I so, love you know, that. Yeah. And so one of my friends out, you know, says this, I'll, I'll do it. So, wait, can I curse? I can't remember. But yeah, so that's kind of one of those things. One of my friends is like, God, this bitch could find quicksand anywhere. <laughs> so, like, that's, that's how I got my trail name. Um, so yeah, I was like, you know, that's hilarious. There's, there's a little bit about it. And I'm like, oh, you know, for a little while I had like a fear of like wet marshy spots. I'm like, is this quicksand? No, it's just mud. I still don't like water crossings because of it. So you, everybody's got their thing where you're like, oh, I feel squeaky about it. And then you do it and it's fine. Right. And right. like nobody dies from quicksand. Like they truly <laughs> don't. It's super embarrassing and inconvenient and very, very dirty. But like, that's what one of those photos in the Google Drive actually that I sent you. It's like literally me wearing like a gray shirt and it looks like I'm in like dirt up to like my knees. I'm in quicksand. Huh. Uh, all right. I'm going to find that one. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, that so might be the photo that we post to promo the show. That, that might be too good to pass up. I'm, I'm not upset about it. I, I think it's funny because like, I mean, those little moments happen. I had a friend and she was like out camping. Her name is Jenny Russo and she runs Unlikely Hikers and she and her partner had gone for a hike. And it was like a little bit windy and they'd set up the, the tent, but they'd forgotten to take it down. And the tent <gasps> oh, no. Cliff. And they had to hike back out. It's a really good story. She tells it on her podcast. And like, it's just like you, like, oh my God. Oh my God. Like, right? Yeah. Those that, only, that only happens. Yeah. It only happens to you once. Quicksand mm-hmm. happens to you three times because the situation's always different. Um, <laughs> that's what I'm going to tell myself anyway. But, you know, it's just like, you know, but we're laughing about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. But we're also telling you, even though we're outdoorsy with a capital O and we've probably like hiked thousands of miles over the years, like sometimes ish happens. Shit happens. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, said. Uh, well, well said. Well said. Yeah. So, you know, and having those moments and saying, hey, this didn't work that time or like warning other people, <laughs> pro tip, please take down your tent. <laughs> you know, when you do stuff, this idea of passing it down to other generations, it's like, I had this amazing trip and I want this for you when you grow up or whatever. And this is what this moment of self-discovery was like for me. Storytelling is so important. Oh yeah. And I wish that we had more of that, Mm. Um, you know, and now we have Instagram and things like that, but who knows in 20 years, just like CDs are now outdated. um, Yeah. VCRs. Yeah. Things like that. Um, You know, I wonder what will become like, Right now, there's something that I need, and it's only on DVD. And I was like, where am I going to find? Like, there's no DVD <laughs> there's, yeah. player on my computer. Yeah, like, right. what, what? Am I going to have to buy a new piece of equipment? Oh, uh, hopefully not. this thing? But yeah, no. so there's that, that idea that, like, we think we're documenting things in this way, but, like, where technology will be in 20 years and how right. we understand it and how we hold on to that. But, you know, oral storytelling still has a great deal of power, mm-hmm, right? Obviously, yeah. we're having conversations like this on a podcast. And so being it, not being ashamed to say, hey, I had this experience that changed my life. I also had this funny kind of slightly humiliating experience that I learned a lot from and think you'll find value in too is equally <laughs> as important for me. They ho- I mean, that's why I told you the Indiana Jenkins thing. I could have <laughs> totally kept that to myself. It's not printed anywhere. It's just really, really funny. Oh, so, it is. You know. Thank you yeah. for that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, lots of laughs with that one. Speaking of outdoors, uh, what do you think it'll change? What do you think it'll take to change the perception of how people of color relate to the outdoors? I think 
from like especially from the time that like I wrote that article in 2018 to now yeah. social media is already changing it mm-hmm. like oh mm-hmm. it's changing in real time when you saw Black Birders Week happen after the harassment of Christian Cooper and then came Black Hikers Week and Black Botanist Week and um you know Black Mammalogist Week it is like you're able to click on a hashtag now and see lots of other Black faces and like during um it was uh Latino Heritage Month which was September 15th to October 15th right like being able to click on those hashtags mm-hmm. and see people of color recreating, you know, with their parents, with their grandparents out in different landscapes, like that whole thing. It start, we're starting to see it and realize we can do it. And like the information sharing is starting to happen mm-hmm. in a way that could not have happened, was not happening in 2018. It was starting to happen, right? But it was not happening in sort of this wave. Like you can literally tweet out something and be like, next week is Black Birders Week and thousands of people show up, you know, and they get in a Zoom room and they have discussions about their, you know, um, relationship to the um, outdoors. So I think some of it is is that mm-hmm. um, a little bit of it will just be, you know, getting comfortable. It's a lot of it is access. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read about that in this piece. You know, the idea that Georgia, Mississippi, a lot of these southern states do not have um, national parks. Part of it is because this was obviously white-owned land, and they were not going to tell these white male landowners to get out so that they could make a park. It's easier to remove indigenous people out West in places that are less populated at this time in order to do that. Mm. So some of it is, and then like, I'm fortunate Congaree National Park, which is um, based in the swamp lands here, as well as Great Smoky Mountains National Park are both free. Oh. Whereas like out West, I some, see. yeah. So certain, certain parks cost not yeah. a small amount of money. Right. Yeah. So yeah. $25, $50, like oh. things like that. Right. Oh yeah. Right. They're, they're not even, even yeah. to camp. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, and like the idea, and I wrote about this in that piece, you know, uh, Great Smoky Mountains National Park was the closest, but if I wanted to go somewhere like the Grand Canyon, right. My family never made that trip because that trip would have cost thousands of dollars. Like that is just not something that was ever in our budget as a family that had a farm. Nobody is taking your farm over for two weeks. So that you can go gallivant around the West. Like, it's, it's no. not like, you know, so, you know, and my parents weren't even like, you and your little friends can do that. I just didn't get to do it. Right. Uh, you know, so it, it's that's starting to change now with people doing road trips and van life and some of that sort of um, stuff. But like, I think part of it is just being able to talk to each other and foster community. And like, now there are a lot of um, spaces like the refuge festival which is built for people of color to engage in the outdoors and try new things um so there are things like that brown girls climbing had um i think it's called crag fest where you can go and climb with other um you know participants of color and learn some things and understand how to do it without this sort of sneering and maybe fear of judgment right that comes with like hey no i haven't i haven't spent a lot of time outdoors how can i do this without feeling like you're also navigating sometimes a race and or regional um, barrier there. Yeah, um, yeah. So that often is, is helpful for people. So I think it, it's like the establishment of those things, the support of some of those things um, by corporations is always helpful, but like not necessary always. Like I, I have a real mixed feeling because like now a lot of these companies are like, yay, black people. And I was like, are now. you really though? Right. Yeah, you know, you know, are you what really? What about... Are, yeah, you know, or they'll, you know, they posted that black box back in June, but couldn't say the word white supremacy. Yeah. Like it's always a very backhanded. It's it often, is. I won't say it. I won't say always, but it's often a sort of backhanded kind of support, or like mm-hmm. a hey, we threw some money at this thing. Or convenient, right? 
Right. Yeah. You know, everybody's doing it. So, you know, it's really figuring out what their intentions are. And that, in, that burden ends up being on people of color, which I am not really into because we've got mm-hmm. enough emotional labor and stuff on our, our um, plates. So this idea of like well-meaning white people, like that's cool, but it, it also takes a whole lot of energy. Yeah. It takes a yeah. whole lot of energy. Yeah. <laughs> Heavy. It does. I feel seen now. <laughs> We're just going to edit that sigh out. Because, like, yeah, it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of brain power. Well, because I, so um, I am a contributing editor for Outdoor Retailer, which is a trade magazine and mm. outdoor rec. Um, I'm the only black editor for mm. that publication, but I am like one of maybe two black editors in the entire outdoor space. And we're talking 27 million plus readers. Really? And that's, <laughs> so there are a lot of discussions that you have. There's a lot of, um, yeah, there's a lot of tone deaf things that happen that you have to try to navigate to. So there's a lot there. And you have to know that, you know, that, you know, that, you know what right. you're doing um, because you're challenged. And I have a great, like everybody I'm staff with is dope. Like they helped me put together a black excellence issue Ooh. and I hired all black writers, all black photographers, like the whole thing. Like it was, it was amazing. And so like that is, it's, it's not the people that I work with that are the problem. It is the power structure structure that we're all bumping up against. Mm -hmm. That is the issue. So I do want to clarify that, but yeah, there's, there's not, and that's why the imagery and iconography in this area is so white and so of a certain variety. Yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Well, I mean, you did talk a little bit about how social media is really helping, um, you know, how people of color relate. And I think it is also creating more visibility for people of color. But is there how can we achieve more visibility for people of color in the great outdoors? My like simple answer, because we've talked about social media in some ways, is just just live your life, document it and share it with the people you care about. Right. Mm, like that's, you know, and sometimes people are going to be like, I want to go to there. Like there's mm. so many things right. um, because I'm a little bit of a recluse um, <laughs> and social media is a little, I don't know. It, it, sometimes it, takes work. It, makes me, it takes work, but it also makes me anxious because I'm like, what if enough people don't like it? Like it becomes an external yeah, validation right. thing mm-hmm. Same. sometimes. So I just like sometimes I'll just send my pictures to my friends and be like, look at these clouds today. Aren't these clouds cute? You know, or whatever. Or like I'm thinking of you take a break for yourself. Here's your 10 personal 10 moments of Zen. I was thinking about you sort of thing. And like some days when I'm struggling, they're doing it for me too. So like the visibility doesn't always have to be in this public way. Sometimes it's just Ah. for your friends, for your family, for like that engagement doesn't have to be for like national or international attention. I love that. It can just be for your circle, for your people, um, you know, and you sort of heal and develop that way. Um, and you're visible, like your, your friends see, you. they see what you're trying to do and they're supportive of you and they care about you and they love you. And like, here's a little thing. Like one day I went for a walk in the garden and I just took this selfie and they were like, you look really happy. And I was like, just for today, for this hour, I think I am. Cause I've just been Aww. having a really hard, um, time emotionally with a lot of things. And, but like, that was their way. I was like, I'm taking this selfie. And right now, like, even if it's just for the hour until I have this re-entry anxiety when I go home, I'm okay. I love that. I also love that you, you've, you're you taking us back to a time where if you, if you didn't post the photo on Instagram, did the memory ever happen? Like, that time seems right. like so long ago, but it really wasn't. 
Yeah. And just sharing these intimate moments with friends or loved ones is enough to feel seen. And I do think that sometimes we forget that because we live in such a highly connected, highly visible on the internet uh, life. So thank you for, for that moment of nature mindfulness. Thank you. I'm still struggling with it too. As like this, like my profile sort of blows up, like in terms of the way my life is changing as a writer, like I'm grateful for it, but it's one of those that like, there's this expectation to sort of always be around on the internet or posting or all the things. I'm just very like intensely private. And because I write so personally about some things, I want some things to be for me. Yeah. And just for me. And I don't know, especially with the monetization of social media, that that gets to be the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm still, I'm very much still grappling with that. But, you know, that's also why I lean very hard into to my friends and sort of support. Come on, Latreya. You've got some successful vibes coming off of you. We are very happy for you. But I understand that that grapple 100%. But honestly, congratulations, because your work is kicking fucking ass all over the place. So thank you. It's weird to see. And I wrote about this on Instagram, like because I have grappled with my body so long. I mean, you you see you all are watching looking at the digital version of this. But when this article came out, one, Aisha McGowan was on the cover. So a black woman with the afro, the right. cyclist. And then you open up the inside and one side is my title. The other is a big fucking picture of my face. Cornrows, big nose, that one Love side it. of me in the field. Yeah. And so like yeah. the September, October 2020 article that I just wrote called nobody can hear you scream it's again the title and a big picture of like my negro nose and my purple hair and like you know this big like I was like my big fat queer face is all over everything right now and like people have like it it, the the article the second article is doing wildly well and my friends are like oh my god here's a picture I opened Mozilla Firefox and you're staring back at me yes and that's weird that is like it's a major like high moment in some ways but it's also this weird sort of doubling of identity and like staring at yourself and taking up space mm-hmm. that I'm not sure that like as a black woman, as a queer woman, as a fat woman, I've ever had the chance to do. Mm-hmm. Or right, really that platform. Oper- yeah. And so it's a little bit of like, you know, um, I never thought that I would be here and it's really interesting to see myself here. But like with that comes great responsibility and digging yeah. into some of the like very hard work of both keeping myself healthy and like continuing to tell these types of stories right for sure for sure oh getting a little period we're very happy for your success like take (laughs) up all the space because you've earned it and you deserve it and we need more people like you out telling these stories so take up all the fucking space uh to round out this interview i'm gonna ask uh, and you've done this throughout the episode but I'm just going to ask you one last time, what advice would you give to our listeners who want to get out into nature, who want to create a relationship with the outdoors, but feel held back or afraid or like it's not for them? Like, what would your call to action to them be? Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I did say it before, but I was like, just give it, give it two shots. Okay. Right. Before you decide that it's not for you, just really like give it, give it a chance and see what you notice and see what you learn both about the world that you're inhabiting at the moment and about yourself. Right. And then I don't know if you guys can see it. So, um, this is not anywhere else, but right now, but like, so I got these tattoos for my 34th birthday. I was and like, spotting so, them. I was yeah. like, wait, I didn't so, see yeah. them in the other photos that you, in no. that you've written. Yeah. So like, these are, these are fairly new. I got them in August. 
Um, and so I have, I really do like my hands are my tools and I needed reminders for myself as I was working through, you know, um, this essay that just came out and, you know, the death of Ahmaud Arbery and this concept of black respectability and who I, who I was, who I wanted to be and everything that happened in the death of John Lewis. And he died July 17th and my birthday is in August. And so I got his motto, good trouble. Um, on the side nice. of my hands. Ah, yeah. And then um, I got magnolias. So this is the first tree I ever identified when I was a little kid. And my parents, um, when they were looking at buying my childhood home, um, you know, they before that, they bought me these world book encyclopedias and I was going through them for botany and all of that sort of stuff. Um, you know, and I pull up to this house and the um, tree is in bloom. And I go, mommy, mommy, it's a Mongolian tree. <laughs> and it was like, it was a magnolia tree, but no one had ever oh said the word gosh, to me, I love right? It. But like, I so it was like I was close, yeah. But I, I, I was close, but no cigar on that oh, one. And so gosh. it was magnolia. I know my mom tells this story at every publishing party I take. It's a to. very different tree. Exactly. It is great. <laughs> you know, I was like one that one that is like uh, fantastical and doesn't exist. But like, mommy, this is a magnolia tree. So like the idea of keeping myself rooted in home with these is, mm. is these, but like on my forearm, it says, I know you're scared, do it anyway. Mm. Um, and that's a line that's in this 2020 outside piece. And like, I, I just heard in that, but like I say that to myself all the time. Wow. Um, you know, I'm yeah. diving on um, sunken slave ships and stuff. I'm terrified of water and current and don't think that I have the skills to do it. Mm. And like, I'm terrified to get myself into a lot of reporting situations that I find myself in, but I do it anyway. Right. Right. right? But, and so right, like, that's, right. like, you know, I, I write that in, in this piece is like, I know you're scared to do it anyway. Cause you never know who you can be when you come out on the other side of it. And I've never right regretted on. it. So that like sounds, I, when I, I show you these tattoos, it is because I want people to understand that I am not advising them to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. Mm. I am not sending lambs to the slaughter. Like I am scared to go to these places and I go anyway, cause I'm always better for it. And I hope that you will do it too, even though you are at times scared because you deserve all the joy and adventure and happiness and wonder and self-discovery that everybody else gets that has, that doesn't have this barrier. Yeah, and so right. anything that I can do to help people get that, I really do try to do it, and that's why it's written on my body. I love you know? that. Uh, so I was like, that, you're doing that it. Is permanent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's that's um, that's a a big one, you know. And just do try to be as prepared as you can. You know, take the ten essentials. You know, which is like water, food. You know, one of the small space blankets. Let people know where you're going. You know, don't just kind of wander. You know, off right. or something like that. <laughs> So like different, you know, those, those basic safety things, but you know, most people know to do those things because you can find them on Google, but the thing that is really holding us back is ourselves. Yeah. And so just give yourself permission to try, because I think as people of color, we don't get that very often, right? We get one chance at this. There are no do, do over, yeah, um, yeah, you know, yeah. and just know that this doesn't have to be a thing that you have to worry about in that way. Praise. You're doing the Lord's Beautiful. work, Inshallah, 100%. Yes. Um, okay, so are you ready for some rapid fire questions? Oh my God. Yes, I like, I knew this was coming, but I don't know. Okay, we're just going to do them. There's no wrong answer. <laughs> There's no wrongs. Yeah. Okay. First question What's your favorite outdoor activity? Oh, in the right conditions, snowshoeing. Okay. What's your favorite camping meal? Uh, 
Good to Go has this chicken pho that's really good. Um, with this little like powdered lime packet that you can put on it. Yeah. That stuff's pretty good. Wow. Like, you know, it's cold. It's like 39 yeah, degrees. Yeah, I was going to say hot night. soup. So, yeah, so that's what I was going to say. Like, I, I have to go. I think I have to go with that one. If And if not that, it's like Mountain House's Chili Mac. Like, I'm really Ooh. a hearty. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to pack more soup for Burning Man when I go because it gets cold out there, too. That's really dope. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Good to go. Makes them really good. I like their oatmeal, the granola, like just warm, like dense, like will keep you full with one pouch because there's nothing like that hiker hunger thing oh, that you can my get God. when you've yeah. been outside because people get it, too, with extreme activities after you've run a half marathon, which is like yep. my distance of choice. I will eat my way down, yes. you know, down a menu. Like that same thing happens when you're hiking sometimes. And I was like, oh, girl, this one packet might not do it for you. Like, make sure you have some extra. So, yeah. So, like, I, I have to have something that's got some, like, oomph to it. Um, yes. But also Mountain mm. House's chicken and biscuits is pretty good, too. Ooh. Yeah. So hey. that's good food. I can't get my family. I'm Southern. Like, you cannot hand my family a cliff bar and be like, oh, girl, we're right. going to do 11 miles. <laughs> like, you have to, like, the food Real has food. to be good, too. Yeah, and I'm, I'm that way. Like, I can survive on a cliff bar. I cannot survive without water. Like, I become a whole different person mm-hmm. um, because I drink a lot. And mm-hmm. so, like, that's, that's kind of my, my thing. But, yeah, like, good food definitely can make or break an experience. Okay. Favorite book? That's, like, asking me to choose, like, you know, my favorite puppy or something. Like that's, I had a feeling. That's a really, yeah, I know. That's a really, really hard one. Um, I can tell you what I'm into now. That works. Um, yeah, so The Death of Vivek um, OG um, by Awake. It's A-K-W-A-E-K-E-E-M-E-Z-I. Um, they're Ooh. fantastic. Um, it's, it's a good book. If you're, you're into sort of literary fiction, um, that's amazing. I'm into Nikki Finney's, if you're into poetry, um, her Love, Love Child book that came out earlier this year. I work as a book critic for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, too. So, like, I read all the, I told you the hustles were real. So, like, I write about art. I write about food. And they're like, what don't you write about? And I was like, I write, a, I don't write straight in a straight line about government. I write about policy. But, like, anything other than that is pretty much, like, on, on the, um, you know, amazing wow so you're then, amazing uh what is it i want to make sure i get the name of this one right um the beauty and breaking by michelle harper man that intro just blew my mind i mean she starts at like a break like a straight sprint and she can't maintain it no one can maintain a sprint for 300 pages but the way it starts is incredible and i i was like oh i'll just kind of you know look at this and i was like oh no i have to read this whole book huh. and so it's, it's amazing so i wanted to make sure i got the title of that one right and that one is uh, a memoir. So you've got your creative nonfiction in there, too. So I've covered uh, most oof. of the fiction, poetry oh, yeah. and creative nonfiction. OK, we've got yeah. choices. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. I know that you're a food writer, so I'm going to be very specific on this next question. You have one more meal on Earth before your time is up. What's your last meal on Earth? <laughs> no restrictions. However you want to I was like, do I get the five courses? You want Um, them. Yeah. So, I mean, listen. uh, So, I'm trying to think about this. You start with the cocktail. It's called Six Gray Horses from the Kennedy here in Sparmer. You got to start with your drink. Okay. So, this is like to go go with this first one. It's got chamomile in it. And it's just a great, (laughs) 
sort of alcoholic beverage just to get you just to get the vibe right okay a little bit um in terms of appetizers i mean i am very simple sometimes and just really good tomatoes with salt and pepper i don't have to have i don't it doesn't even have to be a tomato sandwich or anything like that just like straight tomato um and then probably crab rice as my main dish yum um which is like a dollar peachy sort of uh thing here um you know my sides i gotta have some greens they can be sauteed somehow with a little bit of what we call it's called chow chow and it's like a sweetened pepper relish that we make here um yeah and i gotta have some sweet potatoes Mm. like just even if they're just roasted on the side to go with the crab rice and greens Um, or perhaps that sweet potato cake that I know I've that you publish oh, yeah. on the kitchen that yes. I have made. <laughs> yes, that touched me in such a deep space. Because, like, I mean, when you, like, develop recipes, you never know whether people are going to try them or drink them or like them and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Because I did a Juneteenth like punch for Southern Living, too. And I'm like, yeah, like, the fact that, like, someone's, like, taken this recipe into their home and, like, tried it, just, like, sometimes you feel like you're sending things out into a void. <laughs> And like you feel less alone when you're like, I tried it and I liked it. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Um, but no, so I think that I would probably do like this peach cake that my mom made several years ago for my birthday as my dessert. So I gotta have my sweet potatoes Ooh, and my peaches at the same okay. time. So yeah, I mean that would and then you have to end with there's this drink called the Lucky Rabbit's Foot, which like again, so the Kennedy is my favorite bar in town the guy is from atlanta that made all the drinks so you have this sort of small town but like big big town taste in some ways and so like it is literally magic in a glass and it is the best way to end an evening like i will stand by that pandemic no pandemic um favorite drink in the country right now wow um i love it yeah so and i mean and again this is me going to 30 plus cities um you know at a time it is like there's nothing like going home and being able to go to you know get a really good drink mm-hmm. at, at a bar because like I, I would not have associated this place with that and so I'm, I'm wowed by it every time just because like this was a one horse town it was a small place um that was sort of devoid of its own voice when it came to food culture for a long time um because chains have infiltrated it so but now there are some really interesting unique people doing some fun things here um, and using the region as sort of the the baseline. Inspiration. Next time yeah. we're in South Carolina, we will pay and we are going to dine with you. We're letting you take us out to your favorite places because you yes. know where to go. Oh my God. There's, yes. I was like, I can eat my way through the state just about anywhere that I go. I love it because I'm always in like, I drive the back roads instead of the interstate so I can like look for barbecue pit places mm. with smoke coming out of them. Because uh, like, that's how you know it's real. Like right, a lot of barbecue right. places have switched to gas. Right. And so, like, I don't want to eat at a gas. Like, gas does nothing. You know, you need the right. wood, you right. need flavor. flavor. You need, yep. And so, you know, I'm always kind of, I'm always peeping. Okay. I mean, my family knows I'm bad for that. I'm like, oh, we got to stop here real quick. I, was like, I, know we, <laughs> I love that. I know we're about to be late for this birthday party, but, but... I'm just going to get this plate to go and we'll get back on the road. And what, that, I did that with a friend once. She's like, but we're going to eat where we're going. And I said, okay. Like, I don't understand what that has to do with and... the situation at hand right now. <laughs> okay what's your uh, yeah what's the recipe you cannot stop making in quarantine oh god that would be uh okay so there's this stuff called chicken bog it's another gullah geechee um sort of 
uh, recipe. And Alexander Smalls, uh, he is from this region. He's actually from Spartanburg, but his family is Gullah Geechee. And he was like maybe the first black opera singer to win a Grammy and a Tony or something. Oh, wow. But like, wow. so he's randomly well accomplished or whatever, but he's from here and I've interviewed him a couple of times and I have his new, new, newish book now. Um, and he's like one of James Beard award. When I say this dude is like the most awarded, like Jack of all trades. And I'm like, is this just a feature of people from Spartanburg? Yeah. And it just might be, but like, um, so he has this thing called chicken bug and it's Carolina gold rice and it's like sausage and chicken. And it's got this little, they call it a bog cause it's got like a gravy okay. to it. Oh, so it's I like see. chicken and rice with a really, really good gravy. Mm. Um, and like when I have company or like somebody's sick or like they need something or whatever, I tend to like make chicken bog part of the deal. Wow. Um, but like, because I'm sort of in and out all the time right now, I'm not cooking as much as I I would like to be. I was for for a while. I mean, I was cooking up a storm, but um, I never got into the sourdough thing. Same. Yeah, it was just yeah. not my not my deal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of something else that I was super duper into, but like it was just like my mom is very very picky because she's eating my food all the time, which like means she's eating really well. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> so she's like bougie mouth feels. Yeah, you you know she's like this one feels uninspired. And I was like, that's rude. You're eating better than like 90% of the country right now. Don't be that person. Be grateful. And, but like, yeah, but like she loves hands down when I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going to just throw on some chicken box. She's like, yes, wow. you can eat. Yeah. So like it is, it is something that like impresses her, her too. It's quick to do. And it's just kind of, it's from my region and I love the way it represents. So yeah, that's something I've probably made five or six times. Cause like, I always try a bunch of different things. Like I rarely ever go back to the same recipe right. and I mm. find myself going back to that. Okay. What's your go-to music during quarantine? <sighs> okay. <laughs> I have, because I'm, I'm working on something and I've got to like do the throwback Southern vibes okay. a little bit. So, you know, I've got like Lil Wayne, T.I., that whole mix. Got it. But like I, there's, there's that, but like, I am a much larger baby fan than people would think that I would be. Really? Yeah. Right. So, you know, like coming out of this, the, whatever people think I am. Uh-huh. And they're like, what? <laughs> and so, but like, I've never heard an artist steamroll the beat to his will the way that he does off of a song, like off the rip or something. Like he literally gives you eight syllables before the beat ever drops, before you know where this is going. He is just like, it doesn't matter what you think you're going to do around him. He's just going to plow over the top of whatever it is to get his point across. And I love it. He's also just so Charlotte in some ways. (laughs) I don't necessarily mean that as an amazing thing, but he's just, he's so Charlotte, Um, you know, and it's, it's great to see Southern rappers get some shine. You know, there's obviously a lot of Megan the Stallion and, um, you know, WAP uh, Mm -hmm. happening in this household. Yeah, you know, so there's there's a lot of that. But yeah, I just like I'm all over the place because I also was like listening to like video games live. Like, you know, that was where they would take the video game music uh, and set it to a full orchestra. Like I'm all over the place. Wow. So if I'm like really thinking deeply about something, I use music without words. If I have to like hype myself up to work on something, I'm listening to the baby or to my like Southern rap playlist and hey. things like that. And like, I think I'm going to start working on a book and like every title I want to be the name of a different um, 
song, song. right by a southern artist so there's ah, some valerie june there's some beautiful renee there's some misty elliott like i'm using the baby's light skin shit to talk about miscegenation ah. like, you know yeah so like i'm, I'm all great. over the place like yeah That's, you know and then i'm using Red idea. Dead redemption mm-hmm. to rhiannon giddens plays the, the guitar on one of the songs so i'm using like moonlight from that Ooh. and like whether or not any of this stuff will like stay right as a whole we all know what's gonna happen but you know i was like i gotta try it yeah, yeah i gotta try it see what happens so yeah so i'm really into that right now and like got my list going in the morning i'm like Ugh, and i'm wearing my like you know black joy and black dreams matter sweatshirt <laughs> and i get my love it and like yeah that's how i started the day Love that. Yara Shahidi would love that sweatshirt because I know that she's doing a Black Joy initiative right now. So, Ooh. love that. Uh, what's Yay. your dream travel destination? <sighs> there are a couple. Um, but the one that, like, feels closest, like, a dream that feels almost tangible, was tangible, <laughs> pre-COVID-19, is Japan. Mm-hmm. Like, I wanted to go climb Mount Fuji. Um, mm-hmm. I had a couple of um, cycling trips that I wanted to do. I'm across several of the islands and things like that. And I just, it's so different from obviously the way that I've grown up. Oh yeah. Um, And yeah, you know, and so spending some time um, in that space, like that, that was a dream for a long time. And like, it's so close to coming through. I was going to cover the Olympics this year for work. And then obviously COVID-19 has delayed that. So it's still, it's still a dream destination. And like, hopefully in the next year or two, I'll get it, get there. I will second you on awesome. that. How can we strengthen our relationship with nature during this trying time? Just go outside for five minutes and look up at the sky and see what you realize and what shifts and what changes and what the light does to you. Mm. Ooh. Well, who so are good. your three dream dinner party guests? Tony Morrison. Okay. Mm. Um, my grandmother, her name was, my maternal grandmother, her name was Artie Bell Corley. Um, Because we didn't get to spend as much time together talking as I wanted to. Um, You know, I was very close to my paternal grandmother, but did not get to spend as much time with my maternal grandmother. Um, I don't know who my third would be. Would it not be DaBaby? Oh, no. No, he is not. Because he's not going to eat what I serve. That man was... That man was talking about, like, he... he It was an Instagram Live or something. He was like, let's go see what they got over here to eat. And he picks up a piece of pita bread and he puts it in his mouth and he immediately spits it back out and is like, ooh, that's nasty. And that's what I mean by like, that's uh. so Charlotte. I was like, pita bread has no, right. like what was offensive about this? Right, so right, I was right. like, you can't, you, you're not trying to eat, you're trying to play. Right. Um, <laughs> oh my oh God. God. <laughs> but that's, that's so true. Um, I'm trying to think, cause I've got a couple, like some of them are just like, living people that I met the other person would probably be a friend okay. right so it would be somebody like Rahawa Hale or my friend Lena Martinez Watts one of those like yeah just writers and intellectuals that like I vibe with that I just miss deeply because I'm not seeing people during the pandemic I'm like going on assignment and stuff and usually part of the perk of this job is that you know when I'm in a city like Austin I get to kick with my friends and we like you know drink our way down a menu and eat our way down a okay. menu and right now I'm like I'm gonna dry you know wait drive past your house wave at you from the window and leave some sausage on the step please <laughs> disinfect it when you take it inside i hope you enjoy yourself you know use your lysol wipes just in case you know it, it's like that's a little bit of of, of what i miss and so yeah. i just i really that third person has to just be a friend that i like vibe with 
Okay. Okay. Nice. Rahara seems like a dope choice. So I might Just, say Rahara. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Let's go. Let's go with it. Cool. And then what was the last purchase that you made that excited you? <laughs> um, I bought some. Uh, it's it's so on brand. It, um, <laughs> Bespoke Benny. <laughs> so um, it's B-E-S-P-O-K-E-B-I-N-N-Y. And she's out of the U.K., and I just bought this like kente cloth apron and oven mitt set um, <laughs> a while ago. I haven't bought myself anything in a while. And I'm trying to figure out like what my like self-care purchases that I'm going to do for myself either weekly or monthly, like a box of gardenias or something. Like I yeah. need something to give me some joy because the next 60 days are going to be a Ooh. challenge. Right. Yeah. So um, I don't know what I'm going to do there yet, but like I bought those a couple of months ago whenever I did the Black Excellence issue uh-huh. of uh, Outdoor Retailer. I said that I was going to spend 15% of what I made on Black creatives, mm. um, you know, and buying art from them or buying books from them or whatever. And that was one that was just incredibly like frivolous that I love, you know, so I, I think she does like blankets and lampshades and all sorts of stuff. But yeah, it was really fun. Um, and I, I just love her aesthetic. Bespoke Ninny is what it's called? Benny. B-I-N-N-Y. Bespoke Benny. Okay, I'm noting that down. Yeah. Sorry, I'm taking a moment. I'm not texting, I promise you, but I want to put you're it in fine. our show notes. okay. Yeah, you're good. I will totally send you the link if I need to. Please do. I would love to drop it in show notes for our listeners. Yeah. Okay, that's our interview. But before we call it a wrap, Latreya, friend of the pod, yeah. play cousin to us. Give us all the plugs. How can our listeners keep up with you? Yeah. Well, I just talked about being a recluse all the time. And then I'm like, follow me on social media. Yeah, exactly. I'm only going to post once a month. <laughs> and it will never be of my face. But, like, you know, so, um, you know, my writing, I've started updating that a little bit more. You can find me at Um, My Instagram is Miss Latreagram. Um, and then my Twitter is Latreya Graham. Um, I'm pretty, I was like, I'm pretty easy across the board. Um, yeah. And then also I have, um, a newsletter and so you can sign up for my, the newsletter on latreyagram.com, drop your email in there. And, you know, when I do things like this podcast, it goes out and lets people know. And I talk about, you know, what I'm listening to, what I'm reading, sort of what I'm into at the moment, stuff that I'm, I'm thinking about. Um, you know, sometimes I'll say, you know, uh, oh, I'm on assignment here. Here's a photo from this place or a little bit of behind the scenes, something that didn't make it into the reporting and stuff like that. So awesome. it's a little a little way of getting to know me in a way that I'm sort of comfortable with. Yeah. Because I, I like my storytelling and it's not always super duper visual. Love right. that. Thank you so, so, so much for doing the Black and Yellow podcast. This has been so yes. much fun. It really has. Yeah. My face hurts from smiling so much. Oh, this is so much woo-hoo! fun. Yeah, it's good. That's what we wanted. I'm sorry this was so long, though. Oh, no, no. That's okay. We like a good long episode. Yeah. That means that, like, someone can actually sit and listen to the whole thing as they're driving, walking, or running. Like, it's, like yeah. that's great. Right. I hate a short right. podcast. This is perfect. Yay. Thank you. That's our show, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are the Black and Yellow Podcast. If you want to find us on Instagram, we are on Instagram at Black and Yellow Podcast. Or you can find us individually. I am Alana Webster, but on the gram, they call me at Renegade of Fun. I'm Jacqueline Chung Young on the gram. We're also on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. 